The greatest story ever told is a true story. It is a story of adventures, battles, kings and queens, heroes and villains, good and evil, history and prophecy. It is your story. Come join the adventure of the Bible story. Chapter 135 Jonah and the Great Fish On the grassy plain just ten miles outside of Jerusalem, two massive armies poised, ready to charge. Horses champed and stomped, armor jingled. King Amaziah of Judah glared contemptuously at King Joash of the ten-tribe nation of Israel. His voice filled the air. Why have you violated our sovereignty by bringing your army across my border? He demanded. Joash glared back. To prevent your army from stepping one foot on our soil, he shouted. The battle that followed was settled after the first few intense minutes. It was obvious Judah did not have the will to fight. Amaziah's army was routed, and he was forced to follow his fleeing men into the south. Although some of his men escaped, he was not among them. Joash's light cavalry caught up to him and forced him to surrender. As he was taken prisoner, Amaziah bitterly remembered the words of the prophet that foretold his destruction. Victorious, Joash and his army marched south toward Jerusalem. He found the walled city shut up tight. Boldly, he paraded the captive Amaziah before the guards on the wall. We have your king, he shouted. Open up, or we will cut off his fingers and toes. The humiliated Amaziah kept his mouth shut. When the guards didn't answer, Joash turned to Amaziah. Maybe your people don't want you back so much after all. Then, grabbing the sleeve of one of his officers, he commanded, Take him away. He might be useful later. There are other ways to get into a city. Joash turned to his army. Bring out the battering rams, he snapped. Bring down that wall. Focus on that section from the gate of Ephraim to the corner. Let's show them how safe they really are in those towers. In the bold assault that followed, Many men were killed. Those atop the wall launched stones, bullets, and arrows down on the attacking Israelite army. Sometimes even hot water and oil were poured on them. But gradually, the wall began to buckle and crack. When the weakened section finally gave way, crashed down in a gigantic mass, pulling a 700-foot-long section with it. Invaders teamed into the city. After a sharp battle against the overwhelmed city guards, the fighting was over. Joash rode triumphantly through the wreckage and up the main city thoroughfare in his chariot, pulling the shackled Amaziah behind him. Over the next few hours, the soldiers of Israel ransacked the city, looting both the temple and the royal palace. Joash then ordered his men to round up members of the royal family as well as various important officials. Amaziah was forced to helplessly watch what he thought was going to be a horrendous execution. Surprisingly, Joash turned to his men and ordered Amaziah released. Amaziah was puzzled and didn't know what to say. I am letting you go, 
Joash told the astonished king, but to make sure you stay receptive to my instructions, I am taking many of your friends and family members with me back to Samaria. Think twice before you do anything foolish. Not long after returning triumphantly to Samaria, Joash died. He was buried in Samaria in the tombs of the kings. His rule was a bloody one, filled with fighting and struggle, but also victories. Under his leadership, Israel fought many needless wars. Amaziah, despite his humiliating and disastrous defeat, began rebuilding Judah. No longer did he desire to war against Israel, and no longer did many of his people have confidence in him. He remained king for 15 more trouble-filled years. Toward the end of his rule, he uncovered a plot to assassinate him. He was so worried that a coup was imminent that he fled the palace in Jerusalem and hid in the town of Lachish, about 40 miles southwest of the capital of Judah. Lachish was a frontier town close to the territory of the Philistines and about seven miles from the east shore of the Great Sea, which today is called the Mediterranean Sea. Eventually, the conspirators found and killed him. Amaziah's body was carried back to Jerusalem and buried with the other kings of Judah. In Israel, next in line to Joash was his son, Jeroboam II. When Joash died, Israel's eastern enemies, particularly Syria, once again became domineering, treating the Israelites like slaves. God saw the suffering of his people and inspired Jeroboam to lead a valiant rebellion. God wanted Jeroboam to restore the borders of Israel back to where Joshua had outlined them. The Syrian oppression was so intensive that had God not intervened, it is likely that all of Israel may have been destroyed or carried away captive. God sent the prophet Jonah to deliver this mission to Jeroboam. Jonah foretold of the great heights Israel would reach under Jeroboam's reign. Jeroboam became mad with ambition after hearing that God would restore to Israel a kingdom nearly equal the size of Solomon's. Jeroboam, acting with the confidence that God was behind him and motivated by a lust for power, began a series of widely successful surprise attacks. First, he regained all the cities, towns, and land that had been taken by Syria. Israelite prisoners were freed, swelling the ranks of his army. Next, the Syrian capital, Damascus, was captured, and then further north, the city of Hamath fell. All the territory southward from Hamath to the east coast of the Dead Sea was reclaimed, bringing to fruition the prophecies of Jonah. Through Jeroboam, God restored much of the territory that Israel held back in the day of Solomon. Unfortunately, Jeroboam's military success did not lead to moral or spiritual success. When it came to idolatry, he was worse than the first Jeroboam, who had ruled 128 years previously. He became the most powerful ruler of the Ten Tribes since the division of the kingdom. But as Israel became more prosperous, the further they got from God. 
Many thought Israel's prosperity was the result of an increase in religious activity, but it was false gods and pagan deities that were being worshipped. Such practices break the first three of the Ten Commandments. Commandment breaking never leads to true prosperity. Israel's success could not last while the people turned to other gods. Not since King Solomon had Israel been so strong. And after Jeroboam II, that level of power would not be reached again. God was already raising up another nation to punish Israel for its lack of repentance. Jonah, who had prophesied of Jeroboam's impressive feats, knew that Israel's prosperity was unsustainable unless it turned to God in repentance and obedience. He also probably realized that Israel's dominance of Syria was actually making way for Assyria, a nation farther to the north and east, to rise in preeminence. Assyria was gradually conquering surrounding regions and was engaged in a power struggle with Syria. Like Israel, Assyria became more perverse in its pagan rituals and morals as it prospered materially. Nineveh, the capital city, which was situated on the Tigris River, contained the most decadent citizens. Their sins were so grotesque that God considered destroying the entire city. First, however, God told Jonah to warn the inhabitants so they would have a chance to repent and be spared God's wrath. But Jonah did not want to do the job God gave him. He resisted warning the people of Nineveh. He knew that the Assyrians were conquering all the nations around and that Israel would likely be their next target. And he knew the Assyrians were even more ruthless than the Syrians. Secretly, he hoped God would destroy Nineveh. This was all part of God's plan, though. The Israelites had already received a warning through Jonah about their idolatry and refused to change. Now God would warn a Gentile nation. If the Gentiles listened and repented, it would send a strong message to Israel. Jonah knew that if God had a message for a nation, it must be delivered. But Jonah wasn't thinking logically. Instead, he succumbed to his emotions. If he could get out of Israel quickly enough, he reasoned. Nineveh wouldn't be warned, and God would have to destroy it. Jonah packed his few things and hurried to the seaport of Joppa on the coast of Dan. He bought passage on a large ship headed to what is now known as the Rock of Gibraltar in Spain. This is in the opposite direction of Nineveh and about as far away from Assyria as he could get. Jonah sincerely hoped that God would forget about him. After the vessel left port, Jonah went below the deck to sleep. He was still slumbering when the sea started to get choppy. Soon the wind was howling and the vessel was swaying wildly back and forth from the battering of the angry waves. But it wasn't until the captain of the ship jolted him that Jonah awoke. Wake up! The captain yelled. How can you sleep at a time like this? Jonah stumbled upstairs as the vessel shook violently. He gaped when he beheld the ferocity of the sea. Hang on! The captain bellowed, 
trying to make his voice audible over the roaring wind. This vessel can't take much more of this. It is breaking apart at the seams. We are taking on a lot of water. If you have a god, pray to him before it's too late. A few sailors approached the captain. There has never been a storm like this. Someone on the ship is causing this weather, they said. The sailors, who were accustomed to ferocious storms, looked like frightened children. Let's cast lots to find out which one of us has angered the gods, one of them explained. When the lots were drawn, God caused it to fall on Jonah. The crew looked accusingly. Who are you? They demanded. And what have you done? I am a native of Israel, Jonah answered, and I am a prophet of the God of Israel. He gave me a job to do, but I thought I could elude it by escaping on this ship. It is my God who has sent this storm to punish me for my foolish desertion. The soldiers looked at each other with alarm. They had heard about the wrath of the God of Israel. Why have you done such a thing to bring such a cruel death upon us? One of them spoke up. Tell us what to do to placate this god of yours. Jonah replied quickly and adamantly. Throw me overboard. As soon as you do, the storm will subside. The soldiers hesitated. They did not have faith in what Jonah said and tried desperately to steer toward the shore. But the storm only grew worse. Once they realized their efforts were futile, they decided to follow Jonah's suggestion. Though having their own gods, the sailors prayed to the God of Israel, pleading for him to spare them and not curse them for what they were about to do. After offering one last apology to the prophet, the soaked and shivering men hoisted Jonah up onto their shoulders and threw him over the rail. The wind immediately began to die down. Jonah was right. The men were so astonished by the miracle that they built a small altar on the deck and offered a sacrifice to Jonah's God. After vowing loyalty to him, they sailed on westward through a tranquil sea. Jonah plunged into the cold waters. He fought his way to the surface to gasp for air and caught a fleeting glance of the ship's masts, which were moving away with startling speed. He was alone. As he struggled to keep his head above the water, he prayed. When he knew he could stay afloat no longer, a strange sucking force pulled sharply at his legs. All the water around him began bubbling. Something yanked him down, and before he knew it, he was completely submerged. Suddenly, something soft and slimy enclosed him and began squeezing him downward. It was pitch black, and everything was happening so fast that Jonah could not make out what was taking place. After much turbulence, he came to a rest. feeling about, his first realization was that he could breathe. For that he was grateful. His second thought focused on the fantastic stench of decomposing fish. Wherever he was, it was soft and cramped. 
and it continually moved and pulsated around him. Where was he? There was nothing Jonah could do but wait, think, and pray. He wondered how he was able to breathe. Surely I am in the sea, Jonah thought. So I must have been swallowed by a fish. As the long hours progressed, Jonah meditated on his situation. He prayed for his deliverance from the fish's belly and promised to fulfill his commission to the Ninevites. God had not forgotten Jonah, and he still had a job for him to do. He had especially prepared this situation to bring his prophet to repentance. Suddenly, Jonah felt the belly of the fish shaking. The slimy warmth of the tongue of the great beast closed around him. The fumes of sea life smelled about him one last time, and oh, he was vomited out onto dry land. Looking back to sea, he saw a large fish close to the shore, opening and closing its mouth as if gulping for air. Soon it flopped itself around, swam out to deeper water, and disappeared. Now Jonah knew that he had not imagined anything. As Jonah picked himself up, pulling bits of seaweed out of his hair, he became aware that he was not alone. Only a short distance away, a group of fishermen gawked in amazement. Little children were running around and yelling excitedly about the man who had been spat up on the beach by a great fish. The crowd was growing. Where is this place? Jonah asked. What day is it? He was astonished to learn that he was on the southern shore of what was later called the Black Sea. It had taken the fish three days and three nights to swim him there. Over 850 years later, Jesus would announce that there would be only one sign that he was the Son of God. Just as Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights, Christ would be in the grave for three days and three nights before being resurrected. Jonah's punishment for rebellion all those centuries prior was a sign that Jesus Christ was indeed the true Savior of the world. Who are you? A little boy asked in awed wonder. Feeling a little silly after being vomited up on the beach, Jonah replied that he was a prophet of the God of Israel sent to warn the people of Nineveh. Did you hear that? said one of the adults standing nearby. The prophet of God that travels in the belly of great sea monsters says Nineveh is doomed. I, 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 I wouldn't want to live in Nineveh, another said. Word was spreading faster than Jonah could walk. He had better hurry to Nineveh. Jonah learned that it is impossible to run from God and that it makes no sense to go against his will. God told him to go to Nineveh, so he would. But he still didn't like the idea of giving the evil Assyrians a chance to repent. Why not destroy them before they could trouble Israel? He wondered. From the south shore of the Black Sea where Jonah landed, it was about 500 miles to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria. The journey took him many days, but when he arrived, he was shocked to learn that his reputation preceded him. Entering in at the massive gates of Nineveh, Jonah saw brightly colored blue tiles and pagan reliefs depicting the Assyrian gods. A god stopped him 
You don't look like an Assyrian. Who are you? He demanded. My name is Jonah. I am a prophet. You, 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 you are the, the, the jo- jo- Jonah? The guard stammered. Everyone get out of his way. Make way for Jonah. People gathered around. Soon a huge crowd was pushing and shoving to get a glimpse of the famous prophet. Although Jonah did not like all the attention, he realized that God was behind it so he could fulfill his mission. Summoning up his courage, Jonah spoke to the people. I am a prophet of the God of Israel. He has sent me to warn you. Nineveh will be destroyed in 40 days. Oh no, the rumors are true, shrieked a woman. We are doomed. As news of the prophet's proclamation quickly spread throughout the city, the Ninevites grew increasingly agitated. To be continued in our next episode and continue the adventure by reading the Bible story. Find it under the resources tab at pcg.church.